you know, I wish that I had some primer or some secret sauce that I could pass on. But I think the same thing is true here that's true of everything in life. Empathy, emotional intelligence, asking more questions than you make statements, trying to understand before you try to be understood. I think these are all the most valuable things. From the veteran standpoint, what is leadership? I'm sure there'll be people who disagree with me, but leadership isn't pointing a finger and barking orders. Leadership is delegation. Leadership is self-awareness. Leadership is asking the right questions. You know, we call it flat communication. We call it transparency, but really it's vulnerability. What's up, everyone? And welcome to the Breakline Arena. We are so grateful that you are here. The Breakline Arena is a space that welcomes changemakers, hustlers, and leaders in the tech industry to share their journeys and passions and insights. We are hosted by Breakline Education, which serves to help top performers from underselected backgrounds land new and exciting roles in the tech industry. If you're a person of color or a veteran or a woman, there's info in the show notes about how to join our community. Now let's dive into the arena for today's special guest. Welcome, everyone. This is Bethany Coates, CEO of Breakline. I am so happy to be in this space together with our Breakline participant, Chris Bickle. Chris is a retired special operations veteran. He is going to share much more about his life and his career with us. And he is here in part to help us celebrate the launch of Breakline Transcend, which is our newest vertical design for people with disabilities. Chris Bickle, thank you so much for being here today. Bethany, thank you so very much for having me. Well, so thrilled that we get a chance to share more of your story with our community and with our listeners. And Chris, as we get started, the first question I always ask our guests is, hey, will you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Tell us about your background. Absolutely. I am a official OG. Okie from Muskogee. I grew up in Muskogee, Muskogee, Oklahoma. Both my parents were police officers, so I grew up in a, in, a, in a family that was kind of founded or principled in service and duty. That being said, I kind of had every intention of being a professional musician. That was like my, my lifelong dream as a kid until September 11th. And then I think that changed life for a lot of us, if not for most of us. So on September 11th, I kind of felt like I had some type of obligation. I, I would be hard-pressed to, to explain exactly what that was. So I called an Army recruiter. Went through that entire process, and I enlisted in the Army uh, in an intelligence job as a Russian linguist. Many years later, I got involved in a support role uh, with the 10th Special Forces Group, where I did uh, essentially special reconnaissance, and then was invited to go do or to try out for, to do some other things. For a while, I was successful in that endeavor, and I did that for just over a decade. And then transitioned out of the military, and what, what began that transition for me was I was diagnosed with a rare autoimmune disease, and it's difficult to pin down the etiologies or the causes of these things. But my personal belief and my, my medical team agrees with me is that it was due to a toxic exposure overseas along the Syrian border around 2018. I was very, very ill without going into too gritty of details. I was in and out of the hospital inpatient and outpatient for about two years. And during that time frame, my thirst for knowledge and curiosity and, uh, and sheer bullheadedness were allowed to shine through, which were my now not so secret superpowers. And Walter Reed and Johns Hopkins, the two hospitals where I was mostly inpatient, were unable to diagnose me. They, they were having a very difficult time figuring out what was wrong. The meme that we've all seen of Charlie Day with things over the walls and the yarn, that's, that's kind of what I did for two years straight. I 
I spent two years on PubMed giving myself a crash course in nurse case management and complex diagnoses and was able to diagnose myself, pitch that back to Walter Reed, who agreed with what I was saying. We then took that to the National Institutes of Health and pitched their expert, who then also agreed that I had this acquired autoimmune slash autoinflammatory disease known as adult onset stills disease. If you hadn't heard of that before, I hadn't either. It occurs, I believe, in less than 1% of the extant population, typically occurs in children. But because of this, I couldn't deploy anymore. And if you can't deploy, you can't be a special operator. So I was assigned to Walter Reed, where I was a professional medical patient for two years before I retired. And now I'm healthy, happy, right medications, family's doing great. And I found my way to Breakline, where we're now here to talk about veterans or, or persons with disabilities. Chris, thank you so much for sharing. And before we move on from that little synopsis of your background, there's obviously so much more to it. But in part, I wanted to get back to that part. You said, I did some other things for about 10 years. <laughs> and that, that was a big part of your special operations career. Is there anything that you want to fill in around the edges there for our listeners in terms of that period of time or no? Well, it's always rough, right? I mean, you know, for one thing, you, you always struggle with this idea of what can I say and what can I say? But on the other hand, it's not about me. You know, it's not about anything that I've accomplished. I think that the military can have the appearance of being a meritocracy, and it's not. It doesn't matter to me if somebody was making boxed potatoes in the field or if somebody was a four-star general directing the strategic alignment of the United States government. All these people raised their right hand and agreed to support and defend the Constitution of the United States. And on some level, they were each and every one of those people are willing to die for this country. And I think that's very, very important. And particularly when we talk about certain things, whether that's people with disabilities or people with mental health issues, whatever you know, limitations or perceived limitations a person may have, as far as I'm concerned, even somebody who didn't make it through basic training has a solid check mark, like a good check mark in my book because of what they were willing to do for this nation and the ideals that it stands for. As far as those 10 years, I was very, very blessed to work in a very niche organization that had a assessment and selection process that is extremely comprehensive. It's a very high level of vetting process. So that's not, doesn't mean that I'm better, faster, stronger, smarter. It just means that there's a personality type that they need. And I was that personality type and I succeeded. And in that organization, we focused primarily on taking some of the nation's hardest problem sets overseas without hard coded left and right limits and figuring out how to solve those problems in creative ways. Thank you. Thank you, Chris, for sharing a little bit more. And I want to double tap on your military experience because you and I have talked a little bit about that intersection of military experience and disability. And one of the facets of that intersection that, that we've talked about in the past is what I've come to perceive as a reluctance on the part of some veterans who have a disability be identified with that disability in some way. And one of the responses that you shared with me about that reluctance was this, you said it's sometimes with veterans, they feel as though they are receiving a benefit or even attention that they're unworthy to receive. Would you unpack that a little bit more? What, what did you mean by that? Yeah, so this is easier to write than it is to verbally articulate, right? But, you know, I dealt with some of this myself, right? So I think you have a lot of veterans who, particularly when they're going through either a retirement or a separation process, when they're dealing with the VA and trying to codify what their disabilities are and trying to determine whether they're going to be medically retired or if they're going to get VA disability pay, 
I think there's a lot of people who are hesitant. I think that they feel like there are people who are worse off than them. You know, and, and I think that's the angle that a, a lot of veterans have a tendency to to approach it from is whatever this unspecified amount of, of dollars a, a month that the VA would give me if I like listed all these things out and claim them and we get this whole process, surely that's not for me, right? Like that's, I'm fine. I'm walking around. I see my family and my kids every night. We go to the lake, we have barbecues and we do all these ostensibly, you know, non-disabled normative things. And then they think about people who have either been in catastrophic traumatic events physically where they may be missing a limb or even several limbs. And they think about Purple Heart recipients and they think about people that even a service member would classify as a hero. And they start thinking that these types of benefits are for, for those people and not for them. And I think what you and I talked about on some level is the way I look at those things personally is those things are literally there for those veterans. That's what those things are there for. Just like a regulation tells a service member, here's how you must cut your hair. There is a regulation from the Department of Veterans Affairs that says, based upon the injuries or, or the trauma that you sustained during the course of your military career, this is what we owe you. We have a social contract with you in which if you sustain these things, this is already yours. You just have to, to tell us so that we can you know, codify the correct languages and sign the paperwork. Chris, thank you for sharing your perspective on that. And I wanted to talk a little bit more about within our veteran community and within that intersection of veterans who also have a disability, like your disability, sometimes these are invisible. And you have talked about how complicated that can be. And perhaps particularly when a disability is invisible and, and you talked about PTS, you talked about TBI, you talked about moral injury or a combination. You said that you have seen a tendency for veterans to refuse to admit that there are things that they could once do that now they cannot do. And in fact, that they don't want to celebrate this evolution of their reality and they don't want to advertise it. They don't want to be identified with it. You have personally come to a different place, but Will you talk a little bit, particularly when the disability is invisible, some of that weight that our veterans may be living with as they live with an invisible disability and also with the weight of not asking for the help that they deserve mm -hmm. for that disability, the help and support and resources, just that combination of, of realities that some of these folks might be living with. Yeah, you know, I think there's a lot of things going on here. And kind of the perspective that I've been able to have is, uh, you know, still disease, which I deal with, if I'm not in the middle of a disease flare, for all intents and purposes, I look fine. And for all intents and purposes, I can do most things that I can normally do. So it would be hard for somebody to look at me or, or spend an afternoon with me and think that there was anything wrong with me. And I, I think that that comes with its own set of issues. But unpacking that further, I was blessed, I think, or very fortunate to get sick, which I know maybe sounds counterintuitive, but after spending at that point around 15 years in the special operations community, I, I deployed nonstop. I had done a, around eight combat deployments. And even when I wasn't deployed, I, you know, I was still gone six to eight months a year, you know, not seeing my family. And, and I also had four traumatic brain injuries during my time in service. So whenever I got sick, that was this new opportunity to decompress. And that's whenever I found the things that I personally was dealing with that I didn't want to admit. Already, it was the ramifications of a combat deployments. It's the things you see, the things you do, and 
you know, I'll leave it to trained professionals to really unpack those things. I think what affected me more than anything was the years of high stress more than necessarily than, than anything else. You know, having those two years, uh, roughly, to unpack those things and realize those things about myself, it came to the conclusion that, oh my God, this didn't pop up overnight. I didn't wake up today and look in the mirror and today I have PTS. Today I have four TBIs. This has probably been going on for, for years. In subsequent conversations with my wife, she assures me that that is in fact the case. And she had to shoulder some of the brunt of that, but she did so with a lot of grace, which I'm very thankful for. But knowing that I dealt with those things for so long without realizing them helped me to understand that so are a lot of other veterans. Yes, I think that there are veterans who know that they're dealing with these things and whether they're struggling with self-image or alcohol or anger or whatever the case may be that do have some, some awareness. I think you also have a greater community that doesn't even necessarily know. And that's what's going to be hard for those people is they're not going to know until they've transitioned and now they're out. And now this may be a poor analogy, but whenever you skydive, you're walking on the airplane, it's noisy. You're on the airplane, it's noisy. You're climbing an altitude, it's noisy. The gate opens up, it's noisy. You jump out, it's noisy. You pull your parachute. Pure, beautiful silence, right? And I think that that is the same thing that people will deal with is when they get to that silence and the noise is gone and their thoughts turn inwards, that's when they're going to realize you know, these things about themselves. And I think it's going to be very important that people can, you know, exercise a lot of self-awareness and a lot of self-care at that time, because then the next problem comes. It's admitting those things to yourself. It's admitting that I've got a problem. It's admitting that something happened to me and I am affected because of it. And that's okay. That's normal. Talking about skydiving, I was terrified at every jump I ever went on. I'm sure there are guys who weren't, but I was. And I think that's normal. Why? Because a human being shouldn't jump out of an airplane at 25,000 feet, right? We weren't made to do that. So if you've been through multiple combat deployments and you've seen these things and you've dealt with these things that we don't have to go into gory details of here, you're going to be affected. That's the nature of it. If you watch a comedy on TV, you're going to laugh. If you see a horrible event occur, that's going to have an effect too. It just may be an inward one. And recognizing those things is extremely important because it's only in verbalizing these things, not just admitting them to ourselves, but in admitting them to other people our families, healthcare professionals, that we can find some level of catharsis and healing. And I think that's going to be a challenge with veterans seeking help, right? Is it requires that trust. It requires that commitment. It requires that safe space, you know, to be able to tell somebody, I wake up in the morning and the very first thing I want to do is have a beer, right? Because it will give me some semblance of relaxation, or it could even be like a Pavlovian response, right? Like I wake up, I'm stressed. When I'm stressed, I have a beer. It can be Anger, like a lot of people with PTS and TBI, the kids yelling in one room, the TV's on in the other room, and then somebody tries to talk to you directly to your face. And people experience these almost brain meltdowns where they can't process any more information. These are important things to know about yourself because if you won't admit them to yourself and you won't admit them to other people, you're just always going to have to deal with it. I struggle with the fact that we live in a world where people can't look at the brain like we look at the heart. If you have high blood pressure, you're going to take high blood pressure medication. If you're dealing with a mental health issue, there's ways to deal with that too. The brain is just, just an organ. I'm so glad that you're sharing this, Chris. And, you know, and as a civilian, as a fan, as an ally, as an admirer, I've spent a lot of time with veterans and military spouses over the last 15 years of my career, and especially over the last seven years at Breakline. And what I've seen is it's always the focus on the other, the other person, your team, your mission. It's always other before self. And I'll just give you a tiny example. One of the veterans I'm thinking of who, who served in MARSOC he told me waking up when they were in a water-constrained environment, 
and he had water in his bottle and he was thirsty. And he said, I'm going to hold off. I don't need this water. Somebody else can, can drink this water. And that was just like at a very basic level, denying yourself in order so that someone else could have access to a resource. But I see that over and over and over again. And then that combined with another theme that I see all the time, particularly within special operations, is I'll give you an analogy that a special operator gave to me. I was visiting some of these folks in Fort Bragg in North Carolina, and they were showing me around. And Chris, they take me to the, what is it called? The firing range? The shooting range? Yep, <laughs> the range or the shoot house? The range. Okay. I'm a hippie from Vermont, Chris. I literally had never even seen a gun in real life. And then they took me to the range and I'm watching them go through their sort of practice circuit. And it occurs to me, you all are the Olympians of what you do. You are the best in the world at what you do. It was so amazing to me to see that level of skill. And I said this to this person and he said, you know what, when you're a unicorn, Amongst a whole bunch of unicorns, everyone just starts to look like a donkey. And it was so like, I found it to be a very funny comment, but also very illuminating about the humility, the constant effort to just stay grounded, but also as part of that, to not give yourself full credit for who you are and what you've accomplished. And maybe a little bit of that comes through this self-deprecating humor. And then I'll add one more theme for your consideration, which is the silent warrior theme, this real emphasis on self-sufficiency and not asking for help and not putting your hand up and certainly not shining a spotlight on yourself. And again, we call it the silent warrior, the quiet professional, but that combination of factors, the other before self, the unwillingness or inability to give yourself full credit for what you have achieved. And then the sort of cultural tendency to not ask for help, to just literally be silent. I really worry about that combination of factors for our veterans. And I worry about the weight of that combination in terms of people's willingness to seek help when they need it, when they have earned it, and when they deserve it, and when it's available to them. Yeah, Bethany, those are those are pretty phenomenal points, and I, I'm going to try to unpack them in order as much as I can, but my brain works in a lot of directions at one time. So if you have to redirect me, please feel free to do so. As far as the donkeys thing, I, that's, that's such a phenomenal analogy. This is a total digression, but I was talking to somebody the other day that I, I feel like that's, the, that's some of the problem in some of the hiring arenas today, not, not the ones that you deal with, but in some of the others, is that everybody wants to hire the thoroughbreds, but they want to hire them at the donkey prices. But I digress. Speaking of donkeys, it's interesting, right? Like the, the specific people you're talking about are incredible. And the things they can do physically and the way they think through problem sets, I've never seen anything like it. Uh, you know, I had, I had the opportunity to see them train and, and work with them several times. And it's, I'm hesitant to use the phrase mind-blowing because it seems like such a like trite juvenile thing to say, but that's what it was for me. And then whenever I look at some of the people that I work with more closely, you know, I knew guys who learned three, four, five languages fluently. People who were able to solve these complex problems at a socio-political strategic level that would have boggled the minds of the brightest minds in academia. People who were complete self-proclaimed A-type knuckle-draggers learn complex computer coding languages because they had a problem. They couldn't get me to fix it for them. So by God, I'm going to pull a book off the shelf and I'm going to learn how to do this. And I think that those are skill sets that are so misunderstood. 
and so valuable. For my money, I think that the, the value of the, of the operator is the concept of the Swiss Army knife, right? It's point me in a direction, tell me what you need, and I'll go do it. And that's who these people are. And that is such an ineffable superpower. But it also lends itself to somebody who is always fine. Your arm's broke. I'm fine. Your leg's broke too. I'm fine. You mean to carry your backpack for you? And in a combat situation? Yeah, sure. That's great. Please, by all means, do that because that's what you're going to have to do to survive. But when it comes to seeking help and moving on to the next phase of your life, that's not going to do it. If you are, not to point this in a religious direction, but I'm, you know, I'm reminded of this, this old joke, right? There's a guy on the roof of a skyscraper. There's a huge flood coming up. And a boat comes by and says, no, 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 God's going to save me. Another boat comes by and says, no, 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 no God's going to save me. A helicopter comes by. No, 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 God's going to save me. Finally, he drowns and he's standing before St. Peter in heaven. And, and St. Peter said, dude, we sent you two boats and a helicopter. Like, what? you know, what's the issue here? If the help is out there, you have to take it. Because if you don't help yourself, nobody can come and do that for you. You know, a doctor's not going to kick in your door because you heard you had an infection and forced antibiotics down your throat. You will go to the doctor because you feel bad to take the antibiotics. So when it comes to these types of things of seeking help, whether we're just talking something as simple as talking to a therapist once a week or twice a month or whatever that case may be, or something like Transcend, where you can take somebody who has dealt with these things and provide them a codified system of help and a community, which is even more important, right? Provide them in a community that allows them to be their true selves. Because that's the most important thing. I think it's that it's those safe spaces where we can be our true selves where you don't have to cover anything up. You don't have to feel like you have to cover anything up. You don't have to feel like if you're struggling with something, you have to suck it up and be tough, right? Because you aren't in combat. Like those days are behind you. Thank God they are. I'm sure some of us will always miss some part of that. But now you're in a new place. The parachute's open. It's quiet. You're in a place of peace. And now you have to learn how to live that way. Chris, thank you so much for shedding light on that. And one thing that I wanted to come back to, and you said it at the beginning of this conversation, and you've said it in the past, that your disability recalibrated your outlook on life and your priorities. And you've said it actually has made your life infinitely better in the long term. And I'd love to just unpack that comment. Where is that perspective coming from? Yeah, yeah, of course. There's a lot to that. So. Whenever I got sick, whenever I was in and out of the hospital, a lot of things came out of that. We talk about hiding certain things or stuffing certain things down because you have to be tough, right? But this, this was different. I had to put on the brave face or tough some things out, not to hide anything, but to be resilient, right? Like I believe very much in the power of both ritual and totems. And I, and I think that positive speech and positive thinking goes a long way. So I was fortunate to find myself in a place in life where you know, life metaphorically punched me in the face and then kicked me in the teeth when I hit the ground. And I got back up and I got back up ready to fight. And I was fortunate to be put in a situation where I learned that about myself, but also to be put in a situation where I learned the value of that. Because the value that came out of that for me was to realize that I was more than a soldier. I was more than a service member. I was, I was more than a special operator. And when I say more that it's not any degrees of greatness or lesser or whatever, that's just, I was something else. Those were things that I did. Those were not things that I was. Those were parts of myself. They weren't me. I was also a dad and a husband and now a sick person struggling with the medical system and so many other things 
in learning that about myself and no longer identifying myself only as that uniform or that guy who did certain things for his country, right? Not identifying as an operator or as a soldier or, or as any of those things, but just as me was one of the most valuable experiences of my entire life because I found it to be the single most empowering moment, I think, of my life because now there's no limits. I'm not limited by... I'm an army guy, so this is the only thing that I can do. I'm not limited by, oh, I'm a special operator, so if, you know I have to go work for X big contracting company or, or any of those things. I can do anything that I want to do. And why can I do any of those things? Because I'm me and because I learned that when life punches you in the face and kicks you in the teeth, you get up and you fight. Whatever the source of strength that is that you find there, that's the important part, right? And I think that that's something really, really important, right? Because that's, that's exactly what transcending is. It's overcoming the reality of a situation. I had doctors tell me that you may have X and Y disease and you may have a malignancy and here's the treatment options and things were very, very, very scary. And that wasn't the most important thing. The most important thing was carrying on and enduring and persevering and in transcending, you know, and learning about myself was, I think I've already used my $10 word once for the day, but, but ineffable. It really was. I like, I don't know a great way to, to articulate that, but in discovering who I was through this process. I spent more time with my wife. I spent more time with my kids. I and discovered that I liked them a lot, which is pretty great. And discovered that they liked me being around more too, which which isn't a terrible shake in the deal either. We spent so much time together and became so close. And I rediscovered my love in music. I mean, you know, I said I wanted to be a professional musician before I joined the army, and I had all but kind of given up playing ever. And through my illness, I was introduced to a veterans nonprofit called Creative Vets. Small plug, I apologize, but we pair wounded warriors with hit national songwriters to help them tell their stories. And then we put we also put them through a three week intensive art program at CIC in Chicago, so that they can take these traumatic events that we experience and recodify themselves in their brains as this creative process. Right like now, when I think about this horrible moment in my life, part of what I'm thinking about is this awesome song I got to write, or this art program that I went through. And rediscovering music, that is such a core part of who I am that I had completely forgotten. And now it's just reignited you know, so much for me that I feel like while I'm a stronger person and a different person because of my service, I am more like the bright-eyed 18-year-old kid who went in now than, than I ever was before. And you know, with some of the things that I've seen and experienced, I didn't know that I could get that level of who I was back again. And knowing that I can have that back, that's also empowering. Mm. So for those of you who had to go to a dictionary, because I did... <laughs> to look up what ineffable means, too great or extreme to be expressed or described in words. But I think you did an amazing job describing your experience in words, Chris. And in part of your recounting of moving through that experience and transcending that experience, you mentioned your your family. And when I was interviewing Dan Bershinsky last week, we were talking about the power of asking for help. And I shared a personal experience and I'll share part of it here too. But my husband and I lost our first child. We lost him when I was 28 weeks pregnant. And I remember, Chris, that acute period of grieving when your life as you know it takes a hard right turn of some kind. And what I felt, and I just remember this so clearly, I felt like I had just turned to ash, like my entire body. I was just existing, but not in the way that I used to be. And I remember calling my mom and I was not suicidal, but I said, mom, I just don't want to live anymore. And I can still hear the tone in her voice where she said, Bethany, 
you need to pick yourself up and go on. And it was like, there was something about the tone in her voice where the worst thing that could have possibly happened to me had just happened, but she was looking at the worst thing that could possibly happen to her and it had not happened yet. And she had the ability to kind of shake me back into myself and into the moment. And I'm bringing that up because in these cataclysmic experiences that we have as humans, and yours was very different than mine, but still like the impact that it can have on you and on your feeling of the trajectory that you're on and the way that you understand yourself to be. And all of a sudden it's completely different. To be able to reach out for help and to receive that help in that moment is a glorious gift. And I'm interested in any moment that you had, I mean, you talked about rediscovering your wife and your children. Did you ever have a moment like that where maybe it was one of despair, maybe it was one of questioning, or maybe it was one of grief and someone really showed up for you in a powerful way? You know, I think my family showed up for me every day. Uh, you know, your kids are always just there. They were so young, they didn't know. But then just being there was, was everything. And then my wife, I mean, obviously she acknowledged that there was something wrong with me. I'm, I'm in and out of surgeries and hospitals, but mostly she treated every day as though it were a normal day. And that was a lot. You know, she didn't treat me differently. There were definitely times where she had to bring food up to me, things like that. But yeah, we just kind of took it one day at a time. And one of the biggest things I think was a doctor named Chris Dunbar. Uh, he's an army doctor. And my entire medical team wanted a, what they call a watch and wait protocol, which if you're a physician makes total sense, right? We have a potential insidious malignancy, autoimmune or autoinflammatory disease. We don't have enough specific information of what it is yet. So we're going to wait until it declares itself in a greater way. And then we'll know what it is. And then we'll start to fight it. But for now, we've got to be patient. So as a physician, as a medical team, that, you know, of course, makes 100% sense. As a patient, it's untenable. So I had a doctor named Chris Dunbar, who that wasn't enough for him either. He saw the distress that that caused me. And he took on a role as a quarterback for my illness. And he had every inclination that it was either a malignancy or a autoimmune slash inflammatory disease. And he was an infectious disease doctor, right? So it's not dengue fever or chikungunya. It's not, this isn't his, his ball of yarn, but he still took the impetus to take my growing thousands of pages, a medical record, help me compile that stuff together, put together a packet to NIH for me, be the driving force or the fire under the, as we like to say in the Army Fourth Point of Contact for my medical team and really keep the ball rolling. It, what possible gain did he have from that, right? Other than doing his job well and helping somebody. And that was huge. That was huge for me. I think that helped me also have a lot of the fire that somebody else was at least in the fight with me. I wasn't, wasn't there by myself. Hey, I love that story. There are two pieces that I really loved about it. You called out your wife and your family who just enabled you to just keep living your life, living your, your regular life. And I think that there is something really important to that where when we get one of these hard right or hard left turns. And all of a sudden it feels like we're hurtling in an entirely different direction than the one that we're accustomed to, to remember that there's so much that continues to be familiar. And there's so much that continues to be under our control, I think is deeply comforting on some level. And I think as allies and fans and admirers, it's also important for us to remember that role that we can play too. 
when we're showing up for somebody else. And sometimes it's not about, Chris, your illness. It's like about, hey, what are we making for dinner tonight? And that's the thing that's really going to connect us as human beings. But the second story that you told about Dr. Dunbar, I love this too. And you asked the rhetorical question, like what was in it for him? But I actually think that there was a ton that was in it for him. And I want people to hear this because especially if you are reluctant to ask for help, remember the last time you did a favor for another human being and how you felt when it was something that you could do to support another human being, to give to another human being. It feels great. And that's a gift that we can give ourselves. So if you're reluctant to ask for help, give that gift to another person. Reach out and ask for that favor and give them an opportunity to feel great about showing up for somebody else. And that's what Dr. Dunbar did for you in that moment and what an extraordinary person to show up for. So thank you, Chris, for telling that story. No, absolutely. One of the reasons why I really wanted to have this conversation with you is that you aren't reluctant to talk about your experience and in moving through this experience and exploring it in different ways, both just on a day-to-day basis, but also as you've just talked about through your art, through your music, you're getting your arms around it, but you're also role modeling what's possible for other people. And Sometimes there are tricky elements to difference of any kind. And I talked about this with Dan Bershinsky too. And as allies, as fans, as as people who want to show up, who may not share this same facet of life and facet of being, is there advice? Are there suggestions, recommendations that you have for an ally in showing up for a veteran with a disability or anyone with a disability, anything that you've learned as you move through your own experience that you'd want to pass on to other people who want to be at their best and may not know how? You know, I wish that I had some primer or some secret sauce that I could pass on. But I think the same thing is true here that's true of everything in life. Empathy, emotional intelligence, asking more questions than you make statements, trying to understand before you try to be understood. I think these are all the most valuable things. From the veteran standpoint, what is leadership? I'm sure there'll be people who disagree with me, but leadership isn't pointing a finger and barking orders. Leadership is delegation. Leadership is self-awareness. Leadership is asking the right questions. You know, we call it flat communication. We call it transparency, but really it's vulnerability. You know, these are the important things. We don't have to take a a mentor-mentee standpoint to approach these things. You know, when I work with veterans now with disabilities, I, I try very hard to never be in a position of, I'm over you, or I'm more than you, or I know something that you don't know because I don't, right? None of us do. We're, we're kind of all figuring all of this out as we all go along, right? And the best thing that we can do is just be there for each other. So I think that if you were, you know, a friend and ally, the, the best way to approach it with a disabled veteran is just to be aware that they have the same problems you do, right? They may be codified in, in some different way, but they're still human problems. They're not that person problems. They're not disability problems. People problems are people problems, no matter how you look at them. I say that and I think of the Muppets take Manhattan, right? Peoples as peoples and sometimes rats as peoples too. We're all just people figuring things out and, and there's, there's nothing wrong with that. And there's nothing wrong with that flat communication. And there's nothing wrong when you don't understand something, whether you're the ostensibly the mentor or whether you're the veteran, nothing wrong with just asking a question and just being honest. I think this is something that we have a hard time with today. And, and I, I have for the life of me, no idea why. It's like when we start looking at the job search, right? We're not expected to be ourselves. You're expected to create some 
representation of yourself, some caricature of yourself, but not the one that the guy at the carnival draws with a big nose, but the one that looks like Botticelli painted it, which doesn't make any sense to me because the company doesn't want to hire the caricature. The company is going to be stuck with the real person, regardless of what you present to them walking in the door. I've been very fortunate. I was able to meet a guy named Josh who was actually probably going to listen to this, and I hope this doesn't terribly embarrass him, but I won't give his last name. But he's become very much like a personal mentor of mine. And like that was probably one of the been one of the greatest things other than Brightline of my transition process is finding somebody who is very accomplished in the realm of tech, who is also a special operator, but who is just this very blunt in a good way, honest, open person. And whenever I bounce things off of him, I can be me. I can pitch things the way I would pitch them and hear his eye roll on the other side of the phone. And then get an honest, transparent, non-judgmental response because he knows what it was like to be in the position that I am now. So it's probably just a very long-winded way of saying we all just need to be more open and flat with each other. Love it. Chris, one of the things that you've said in the past that I really loved and gravitated toward, you said being acknowledged as a disabled person should be a badge of honor. And you quoted Walt Whitman you quoted him in just a little snippet, but I want to read the entire stanza. And it was from a poem that he wrote called Song of Myself, 52. And in part, it says, I too am not a bit tamed. I too am untranslatable. I sound my barbaric yop over the roofs of the world. Can you talk to us about that poem? Why were you pulling from that poem as you were saying that my disability is a badge of honor? going to hope that none of our literature majors too upset about this. But the entire purpose, right, of, of Whitman writing those words is that Whitman himself could ostensibly be called a divergent person from the norms of that time. And he was saying, I don't care. I don't care what you think. I'm doing what I want to do. It's what I believe in. It's what fulfills me. And I think that's the important thing. I'm not saying that everybody should go out and be a poet, but we have to own who we are. This entire part of my face uh, that I'm pointing at that you can't hear in the podcast, the entire right side of my face is titanium and plastic. Does that define me? No, it doesn't. Any more than you know, a wheelchair might for somebody who's a paraplegic or, or even a quadriplegic. You know, One of the greatest inspirations that I've ever met is a guy named Charlie Merritt, who is a quadriplegic, and he's done more with his life since being injured than I think most fully capable and, and healthy people ever do. He didn't have to be a triathlete. He didn't have to be an Olympian. He didn't have to be a Navy SEAL, Delta Force, super skydiving ultra warrior. He just had to be Charlie Merritt. And to me, that's what Whitman is saying. So I'm going to stand on the roof, bear myself before the world. This is who I am. Let's get to it. Beautiful. And I want to pull in that thread a little bit more because I'm, I'm connecting it to something that you said earlier, which was around the myopia that we sometimes fall victim to when we associate ourselves essentially with our work. You were talking about this chapter of your life where you associated so deeply as a special operator. And my friend, Bill Meehan, who happens to be a person with a disability as well, he actually said this to me many years ago, probably 10 years ago now. He said, Americans have this thing with self-actualization through work. This <laughs> point was like, there's so much more going on. And I think it's amazing, actually, Chris, that you had this event in your life and it caused you to not 
be constrained, but actually to have your awareness completely open up about everything that you are and everything that you can continue to be. And it was just this really extraordinary, almost like flowering that you were talking about in terms of your own understanding of yourself that I thought was really powerful. And I just wanted to to come back to it, you know, and talk about it again, because I, I find myself ruminating on, on what must have been a very profound experience. You know, in songwriting, the elusive concept is authenticity, yeah. right? If you listen to 100 songs on Radio Country, you might actually only hear four or five songs. But that's all in the eye of the beholder also. So it becomes this very convoluted, hard to codify thing. For me, it was about stripping away all of the BS, for lack of a better term, and all the masks that I put on that weren't who I was, because that's what had happened, right? I had lost some sense, even though I was very successful. Even though I was very successful and accomplished so many things, I did that on some level by also transforming into another version of myself that was capable, but wasn't the most authentic to me. And that was necessary to do that job to be good at it, to accomplish the things that I accomplished. And that's part of the sacrifice of being in the military in general. And walking out of that, what I needed to do was strip away those layers because that person, that person wasn't, was not going to be successful walking out of the military, right? The person who's successful in the middle of nowhere in a third world country in these dynamic and potentially morally ambiguous situations, right? Where you have to make split minute decisions and make them correctly on a razor's edge Maintaining that person, that's not sustainable. That's not a life. Not for me. You know, maybe there are people out there who that that is them. It wasn't me. You know, so walking out of the military, I had to strip and peel those things away. And that 19-year-old guitar player who wanted to save the world with music, right? That naive part of myself was still true to me. You know, now I understand more things, right? I understand that music is never going to save the world. But I also understand the story of the starfish. And I can embrace that story metaphorically wholeheartedly understanding that it's naive and be okay with it because every single one does still matter regardless of how you look at it. growing up and seeing harsh things in the world and understanding greater truth doesn't have to make you an existential nihilist we can still live a life where what we're trying to do is empower others where what we're trying to do is change the world for the better if the doctors had told me your disease is terminal and there's nothing we can do was I going to lie down and just give up and, and die right there on the spot? No, of course not. I was going to do the same things that I, that I did because giving up is never, is never an option. So that flowering really was just about embracing me. And to speak of you know, Americans and, and finding self-actualization at work, I don't know, your generations are, were probably not terribly far apart from each other. But whenever I was a kid, when you did something wrong, what did teachers tell you? You're going to end up being a ditch digger. Okay, what's wrong with that? Somewhere out there right now, somebody digging a ditch who loves it. And that's okay. Because that person isn't defined by being a ditch digger. Look at some of the greatest poets and artists and musicians of all time. And what did they do before those things? Harrison Ford's a great example. He was a carpenter. How many people are out there right now trying to be a carpenter? There's nothing wrong with being a carpenter. Now, I say that as a guy trying to get into tech, but there's nothing wrong with any of those things. Like, you know, we, we have this concept as, of Americans as though there are these steps forward and backwards. I don't believe in that. I believe there are steps to the left and there are steps to the right. And the places where we can make progress is in, in who we are authentically to ourselves and in who we are with other people and the world around us, period. Thank you, Chris. And I know that we're coming up on time and you've, you've talked about yourself as a musician, as a songwriter. And one of the songs that you've written fairly recently is called Find Myself. 
folks can search for it online and it's an absolutely beautiful song. And as we wrap up, I'd love for you to just talk to us about what story that song is sharing with the world. Uh, I had the opportunity to write a song with Jordan Michaels and J.D. Weatherford, both phenomenal songwriters. But the real star here was a female veteran whose name will stay there where it is. She'd accomplished some great things in her life. She was at the very pinnacle uh, of special operations and uh, what is probably considered the varsity special missions unit in the United States military period. And she had been a victim of sexual abuse as a child and then later in her military career. And she had gotten to a point in her life where she couldn't even leave the house. She was overcome with existential dread. Her image of herself, right? She would use external language about what other people had done to her. But I feel like, and she agreed to me, that the, the real damage is maybe how, how, she was, how she was seeing herself and how she was perceiving herself. And she hit a point where she was struggling with not suicidal intentions, but suicidal ideations. And that's what we sat down and wrote the song about. And this, the songwriters and I, we had the conversation with her during the song of, we want to tell your story as authentically as it needs to be. So the, the bridge of that song, and for those of you who don't know what a bridge is, a typical song structure is verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus. And the whole point of the bridge is to either shake up the song and change it some way or to underline and point something out very, very specific. And the bridge of that song was something that she had been wanting to say to herself and acknowledge, but also to her family and her friends that she had experienced this. And the bridge of the song is uh, sometimes late at night, I sit with a loaded gun in my hand. I need someone to help me because I'm not sure that I can. I mean, that was a sobering line, right? To have to write a song and a sobering thing to have to hear somebody talk about. But the most important thing, the most empowering thing, the most cathartic thing for her is that she acknowledged it and she put it out into the world. She Whitmaned it. Over the roofs of the world, she shouted her barbaric yap and, and she did so openly and without reservation, without hesitation. And to have that trust in that moment, to have that vulnerability from her, I mean, I can't imagine. A, to have been a female and experienced those things, but then to be having that conversation with a man that you don't know, just the level of courage, strength, and power that she had was absolutely phenomenal. And I am eternally grateful to her for her vulnerability and for her friendship and to Creative Vets for, you know, entrusting me with being the mentor on that song, right? It was, there's not a day that goes by that I just, I don't think about those moments. That was a nine hour, I think a nine hour song, right? And uh, that is not, songwriters are like a three hour could be a long song, right? So that was, that was a day, um, but she's, she's doing really well now. I get texts all the time of how she's traveling the world and taking pictures of beaches and oceans and drinking Mai Tais and, uh, and living her best life. So I hope we gave her a step in the right direction. Chris, thank you for sharing the behind the scenes of, of that song. And, you know, and it occurs to me that in writing that song with that woman, you were showing up in a full circle way for another veteran. You were there to help and support and to turn something tragic into something beautiful. And I just appreciate you. Thank you so much for sharing your story, for sharing more about the song that you wrote and for being with us as we celebrate the launch of Breakline Transcend. No, thank you so much, Bethany. I, I really appreciate this opportunity to talk to you today. Thank you guys so much for joining us for another episode of the Breakline Arena. We're hoping that you're walking away feeling a little moved, a little inspired. And if you really had a good time, feel free to head on over, rate, subscribe, leave us a review. It does help us spread the good word, keeps these good vibes rolling. Yes, we would love to hear from you. Thanks again, and we will see you next time.